Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sleep.me, formerly called Chili Sleep. You've heard me talk about them before and with good reason. Science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. And temperature-controlled sleep repairs muscle after a hard day's work. It improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And definitely, for me, it correlates with more deep sleep. In fact, cooling my sleep environment has been the single most impactful change I've made for my sleep, and I desperately miss my cooler sleep environment when I travel. Chili Sleep makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. They create the environment that meets the body's natural need for lower core temperatures, promoting deeper, restorative sleep. Chili Sleep makes the Uller, the Cube, and the Doc Pro sleep systems, which are all water-based, temperature-controlled mattress toppers that fit over any existing mattress to provide your ideal sleep temperature. These mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep, cold sleep, and they're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power your day. They also just launched their new Doc Pro system, which has two times more powerful cold power than other models. It's whisper quiet and has a tubeless mattress pad that allows for five times more cooling contact. You can pair it with the new Sleep.me app for enhanced device control and sleep scheduling. And I love all of these because they cool your bed, not your room, which is more effective at keeping you cool while sleeping and uses less energy than, for instance, running your air conditioning really low all night. Head over to sleep.me slash wellnessmama to learn more and save 25% off the purchase of any new Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. The offer is available exclusively for you guys, Wellness Mama listeners, and only for a limited time. So that's sleep.me, S-L-E-E-P dot M-E slash wellnessmama to take advantage of these exclusive discounts. This episode is brought to you by Timeline Nutrition. We've all heard of probiotics and probably also prebiotics, but have you heard of postbiotics? Thanks to emerging research, I've been getting to experiment with these. We know that maintaining muscle mass as we get older is critically important to longevity and to enduring good health. In fact, it is one of the biggest predictors of longevity and one of the reasons I lift weights regularly and keep an eye on metrics like grip strength. Postbiotics are the active nutrients that your body makes during digestion, and they're an emerging driver of these metrics for a couple of reasons. One major reason is that certain postbiotics support mitophagy or the flushing out of old damaged mitochondria, which is really critical in the aging equation. The best compound I found to support this is called urolithin A, and I was super intrigued when I found it. It's derived from pomegranate, but it's very hard or practically impossible to eat or drink enough pomegranate to get the scientifically proven therapeutic dose. But urolithin A is one of the first probiotics that we found to have major health benefits, and it's become available to all of us. It upgrades your body's cellular power grid, giving your body the energy it needs to optimize. And clinical studies have shown that 500 milligrams of urolithin A alone significantly increase muscle strength and endurance with no other change in lifestyle. And that's where a product I found called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition comes in. They have created three ways to get this daily 500 milligram dose of urolithin A in their product called MitoPure. They have a delicious vanilla protein powder one that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure. They have a berry powder that mixes easily into smoothies or just about any drink. And they even have soft gel capsules for travel or you can use them every day if you prefer. Personally, I like the starter pack that lets you use all three forms and see which one you like best. And MitoPure is the first product to offer this precise dose of urolithin A to upgrade mitochondria function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength and endurance. Right now, Timeline is offering 10% off your first order of MitoPure. You can get this by going to timelinenutrition.com 
timeandmoneyshow.com slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama. So again, that's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and this episode is all about hormone health, hormone replacement therapy, and specifically as women enter the times of perimenopause and menopause, we go deep on what the data actually says. There's been a lot of misconceptions and myths in the research and data here, and this episode really goes deep on helping dispel some of those myths. I'm here with Dr. Michelle Sands, who is an absolute encyclopedia of knowledge on this topic, and she's the co-founder of Glow Natural Wellness and the Healthy Hormone Club. And she's a double board certified naturopathic physician and international best-selling author of Hormone Harmony Over 35. She was the producer of the Perimenopause Summit, and she's been featured all over the media for her work on this. And she herself has struggled with autoimmunity, digestive issues, and all kinds of other things. So she has personal experience here, as well as she was diagnosed with primary ovarian failure at the age of 20, which thrust her into premature menopause early in life. And so she has experienced these symptoms way before her time. She went on to reverse it and have a child naturally. And she now works with so many women all over the world in the country on helping resolve these issues. And in this episode, she walks us through a lot of the myths and truths about hormone replacement therapy. She talks about the different types available and the differences and why this is really important to understand. She talks about why hormone levels are shifting earlier for women and men and how to navigate this, how to navigate the natural hormone decline with age and the best time to actually test and consider replacement therapy. We talk about what makes bioidentical hormone replacement different and why dose matters. We delve into where hormones, bioidentical hormones and synthetic hormones come from, including a surprising practice in China that was the first use of biological hormones. She talks about why hormone replacement therapy does not raise cancer, heart disease, or stroke risk if done correctly and can actually be protective. We talk about the real story about estrogen and cancer, a lot of new information on hormones from a women's health initiative in 2019, and so much more. So like I said, she's an absolute wealth of knowledge. We'll do more episodes with her on other hormone-related topics in the future, but this one goes deep on hormone replacement therapy and menopause. And I know I learned a lot. I know you will too. So let's join Dr. Sands. Dr. Michelle, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited. I'm a fan of the show, so um, it's just a great to be here. Well, I'm excited to chat, and it's crazy that we live very close by and are yet to actually meet in person, but hopefully that will happen sooner than later. And we're going to go deep on hormones and hormone replacement therapy and so many things today. And I'm really excited to dive into that. But before we do, as background, I have notes that you were a kickboxing champion, which I want to hear a little bit about, and also that you have a delayed sleep phase syndrome, which I would be really curious about because I suspect one of my kids might also have this. Um, and I recently found out that I am an inverse modulator of all things like magnesium, GABA, et cetera, which is why they affect me differently. So I would love to hear how you found that out and what that's impacted your life. Yeah, sure. So um, with kickboxing, um, I, I don't know how I got into it. I used to hang around a, a gym. One of my friends used to, one of my actually college roommates used to do some kickboxing. So I would hang around there and wait for him to get out, do my schoolwork. And then one day I just decided to jump in and give it a try. And I was actually de pretty decent at it. Um, and I would practice with him. I'd go. And then um, there was one time there was a meet, a kickboxing meet locally in Orange County where I was going to school at the time. And one of the girls who was normally fighting was sick. So they're like, hey, Michelle, can you jump in and do the meet? So I was scared, but it was amateur. So like you wore total headgear. And so I wasn't going to get like, 
totally hurt. Um, so I went in and I actually won the meet. And so I ended up going and and actually competing. And I became a junior champion in college kickboxer. And if, when you meet me, I'm so like non-confrontational and kind of like timid. So no one would actually think that, but it's kind of like something that in my past that people would never believe, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. And then the delayed sleep phase syndrome, that is really interesting. So as a child, I always had a hard time getting up for school and I was always wanting to stay up at night. I was the kid that would have my flashlight under my blanket, reading comic books and magazines. And my mom would be like, you got to go to bed. And I, you know, I always kind of fought it. And then when I got to college, my classes, the early classes, I'd never be able to make it to. So I'd go in my jammies to like the 10, 11 o'clock classes. And that was the first class I can make it to. And then out of college, I got, you know, a job and jobs start at 9 a.m. And most jobs at nine to five. And I really struggled during that time. I, I can do it. I can force myself to do anything. So I'd get up. I'd go and I just would struggle. I noticed my digestion would be off. My uh, my hormones would be off. My moods would be off. And I would not be able to concentrate really before noon. So it wasn't really until, gosh, much later in my life, until I finished naturopathic medical school and I started getting into genetics, that I ran my own genetics on myself. And I realized that I'm part of the 1% of the population that has a variation in their clock genes, which is called delayed sleep phase syndrome. And what that means is that my genetic clock is actually pushed forward by, it it can be anywhere from two to four hours. So if you think about the normal in natural medicine, holistic medicine, we always say aim to go to sleep around 10 PM for optimal health. For me, that is actually around 2 PM. So it's just switched forward. So for me, like my focus time, the time when I'm in my flow, when I can get my creative stuff done, when I can actually think clearly, it's really after midnight. And so for me to force myself into the standard of waking up at six, going to bed at 10, I'm not in my optimal and I miss out on that time when I can actually be most creative. So I've been honoring that now and I've shifted my work schedule to be later. I shifted my bedtime later and everything seems to work better. My digestion's better. So, you know, if you don't have a good night's sleep, I don't know if you guys realize this, but if you don't have a good night's sleep, you don't digest your food as well because that's when kind of your body kind of cleans itself out. I get sick less often and I just feel much better. My It's easier to maintain my weight. My cravings are better. So it's really interesting. So yes, um, 1% of the population has delayed sleep phase syndrome. And then there's another 1% of the population that has advanced sleep phase syndrome, which is the opposite. So you need to go to bed earlier and you would be better waking up earlier. And the only really way to know is to run genetics. We have our own genetic test in our practice, but you can easily do 23andMe and there's certain SNPs to look for. That's so fascinating and definitely different than people who would just consider themselves night owls, but who can, for instance, like entrain their circadian rhythm based on light and other factors more easily. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can train. There's some genes that would make you more of a night owl and more of an early morning person and that you can train yourself either way. But with the the specific genetic variation that I have, it's really, it's really hard to train yourself. You, you can still do it. You can still combat it, but you're really going against your natural rhythms. That's so fascinating. I love the more we learn about genes, it just opens up whole new worlds of understanding, I feel like. And another area that I think is really relevant right now and that you are definitely an expert in is the world of hormones. And I hear from a lot of listeners and readers who are trying to figure out different pieces of this puzzle for themselves. And so I'm really excited we're going to get to sort of delve into 
some of the myths and misconceptions related to hormones and hormone replacement therapy. I think for a lot of women, especially, this sometimes feels like a really overwhelming topic or that there are so many things that come into play. Um, and so I'm really excited to learn from you on this. To start broad, maybe just give us a walk through an overview of when we're talking about hormone replacement therapy, especially for women, what hormones are we talking about just so we have a kind of base understanding? Yeah, so there's over, over 100 hormones in the human body. But when we're talking about hormone replacement therapy for women, we're generally most of the time talking about estrogen and progesterone. Um, in our practice, we also encompass testosterone and DHA also because those are your sex hormones. Those are the ones that we're talking about in hormone replacement therapy. There's also interplay between the thyroid and interplay between the adrenals, but those are technically not included in the hormone replacement therapy conversation. What we're really talking about is the hormones that decline as a result of perimenopause and menopause when the ovaries stop working. And our ovaries make primarily estrogen, progesterone, and some testosterone. Men in their testes make a lot of testosterone and a little bit of progesterone and estrogen. So, and then in menopause, once our ovaries stop working, we don't have zero hormones. Our adrenal glands still kind of can make some hormones. They, they will make DHEA and then DHEA can convert to testosterone and testosterone can convert to estrogen. And we still have a little tiny bit of progesterone just from our peripheral tissues, but it's, it's not really enough to do all the things that we want it to do as far as bone health, brain health, heart health, weight and maintenance, blood pressure and blood sugar regulation. So there's so many things that our sex hormones do besides reproduction. And that's really where the conversation about hormone replacement comes into play. It's a quality of life. It's a longevity issue. It's about not getting on the pill mill, the, the treadmill of prescriptions one after the other as we hit a certain age in our 50s and 60s. And the truth is that we're living a lot longer than we used to. It used to be when I was a little girl, um, if my grandparents lived to 60, 65, that was considered normal um, for, for them to die in that age range. But now people are living 80, 90, 100 is considered normal. And if the average woman is going into perimenopause at age 40, that's more than half her life that she can be in a state of hormone decline. And that is just not fair. And it's really an impact on her quality of life and her ability to really enjoy her life. And I think to that point, it's, you know, the conversation around health span versus just lifespan and having to address these in ways we haven't in the past. So I'm curious who you think is good candidates for these hormone replacement therapies before we start going into some of the myths and misconceptions. Like, is this something that in general is a helpful recommendation for most women? Because you talked about like some of these hormones can still be created in the adrenals, but I would guess that puts more of a load on the adrenals, which also impacts other hormones and, and stress and cortisol and everything else. So um, when you have people come into you, how are you evaluating who maybe is good candidate for hormones and who isn't? Yeah, so we look at their health history, we look at their symptoms, we, we look at their goals. Um, and nearly everybody, almost everybody is a candidate for some form of hormone replacement therapy. And um, there's different forms that are available. You can do vaginal hormone replacement therapy, which stays local to the vaginal tissues, which then will help with all the urogenital symptoms, vaginal dryness, vaginal atrophy, painful sex, increased UTIs, 
a lot of different issues that can go on down there. Um, and that's even uh, available to women who have had breast cancer or currently have breast cancer, whereas other therapies like topical hormones, those have pretty much the least side effects. So there's no worry about increased risk of stroke or clotting with topical hormones. There is no increased risk of toxicity to the liver. And so those topical hormones can really be at a dose that's appropriate for that woman available to most women. I would say there's very few women who are not candidates for hormone replacement. And then for men, um, testosterone replacement, in some respect, progesterone for men also. It's not really talked about a lot, but it helps to reduce prostate cancer. It's also important for their bone health and some other issues. They do need that sometimes as well, in addition to testosterone. Um, But there's very few people that cannot use any hormone replacement therapy. Now, of course, it's it's a choice. So in our practice, we believe in freedom of choice and the importance of knowing your choices. So some women may choose not to use hormone replacement therapy and I fully support them in that, but they should definitely, no one should make that choice for them. They should know their options and then make that choice for themselves. Yeah, I think that's a huge, huge piece of it. And I, I've i worked in the birth world um, as a student midwife and a doula. And same thing is like, I fully respect any woman's right to choose whatever birth she wants, whether it be a scheduled C-section, but she should get full informed consent of that choice and get to make it. And it seems like that's a very relevant conversation at this phase of hormone change as well. I think the difference in the types and applications is also maybe misunderstood or just not commonly known for a lot of women. Yeah. Between you mentioned like topical, I know there's also injectable, there's pellets, there's all kinds of different yeah. ones hitting the market. And I, I've seen stats that for men, for example, is it that their testosterone is a third of what it was for their grandfather's generation or something, some really drastic stat. Are we seeing that same type of hormone decline in women as well? Yeah, so um, what we're seeing is the benchmarks of reproduction are actually moving up. So we see young girls as young as eight starting to develop breasts and by age nine starting their periods. And then we're seeing women in their 20s, 30s going into hormone decline, um, the beginnings of perimenopause, starting to have symptoms like anxiety, trouble sleeping, lack of libido and sex drive, vaginal dryness. Um, all, all types of things that we might attribute to women who should be in their late 40s, early 50s. We're seeing that come on a lot earlier um, for a variety of reasons from environmental toxins, xenoestrogen in the environment. We're seeing people are heavier than they used to be. So additional weight that they're carrying can influence the ability of the reproductive system to work properly. So there's a lot of different factors that are, are we are seeing a lot of advanced um, age and symptoms of having earlier s- cases of menopause. I'm calling it millennial pause now because the millennial generation is seeing the, the menopause coming on in their 30s and 40s and they're shocked that they don't know what to do. They're thinking they need antidepressants. They're thinking that they're slacking off or they're just not pushing hard enough because they're tired and they're blaming themselves a lot of times and women lose confidence because they think there's something wrong with them because this conversation that we're having today is not hot enough. And so I think the more that we're able to talk about what to expect and what might be happening and why it might be happening, then women will benefit. And unfortunately, many doctors, only 20% of doctors in the United States have any training on the natural decline of hormones due to perimenopause and menopause and hormone replacement therapy when it comes to um, women replacing their hormones after that natural decline, less than 20%. That's that's scary. That means you go to eight out of 10 doctors and they have no clue. So what they're doing is they're just 
giving you a band-aid for each symptom. You're depressed, you get an antidepressant. Um, you know, some women are being told to suck it up when they don't have, you know, if they don't have a sex drive, they're being told. I actually had a woman today who um she went to her doctor having painful sex, vaginal dryness, low libido, and her doctor told her to take one for the team, that she should just drink some wine and take one for the team. And I'm just like, that is just not. That's not what a licensed medical professional should be telling them. But the thing is, they don't have any education when it comes to hormone replacement. There is now a big movement within at Harvard Medical School and a lot of prestigious universities where they are starting to do some menopause training and some more education, more than just the one hour where they might learn, okay, when a woman hits 55, her hormones decline, and that's it. Um, the problem with hormone replacement came out, although in 2002, we'll talk about the Women's Health Initiative study, which really was the biggest disservice to women in the menopause, perimenopause age range that I could ever happen. Um, it was a very erroneous, erroneous study. Um, it was debunked many, many times since it has been published. Um, but the actual study itself does have the true information, but the headlines that the, the media took from the study back in 2002. That's what scared everybody to think that all hormone replacement was dangerous and all hormone replacement can cause cancer. And so that is the thing that doctors, a lot of doctors who are not educated in hormones, they'll immediately go back to what they heard in those headlines and they'll tell their patients, no, you can't have hormones because hormones cause cancer. And it's really, it's a shame because that, I will talk about the study, um, in a minute, I can go into it right now if you want, but I want to answer your question about the different types of hormones before I go down a rabbit hole. Um, the different types of hormones, there are a lot, and there there's different types when you talk about synthetic versus bioidentical. There's different types when it comes to delivery method, and then there's dosing. So um, all, th all three matters. So the type of hormone, the delivery method of the hormone, and the dosing of the hormone are all important when it comes to the safety and whether it's going to actually help you or hurt you because hormones are very Goldilocks. Too much of a hormone can cause problems. Too little of a hormone can cause problems, but just the right amount of hormone is what we're looking for. So we always test, we always individualize, and we always give women the safest and most effective dose. So with synthetic hormones, synthetic hormones, all it means is it's man-made. And with synthetic sex hormones, they're they're slightly different than what our body makes because they're patented by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, the most popular estrogen is called Primarin. It's a conjugated equine estrogen. And what that means is the horse estrogen. It's made from the urine of pregnant horses, which is where they get Primarin from. And that was the very popular hormone that was used around the time of the Women's Health Initiative study. So that's the one that they had in the study. It's an oral hormone. Um, derived from horse urine. Now, horses have like 17 different types of estrogens. None of those are identical to what is in a, a female human estrogen. We have three types of estrogens. Um, we have estrone, estradiol, and estriol. And horses have 17 different ones, 10 of which are in the primarin. Um, so that's the estrogen. And then for the progesterone, there's a synthetic progestin um, called medroxyprogesterone acetate. That is what was in the um, Provera, which was what was used in the Women's Health Initiative study too. And it's, that's pretty commonly prescribed even today. 
And also what's in uh, birth control pills. So um, synthetic progestin is what we see in most birth control pills. Birth control pills are synthetic hormones and they are endocrine disruptors. They're not actually, they're not actually giving you hormones to balance your hormones. They're actually the reason why we take birth control pills is to disrupt our, our ability to get pregnant. And so when you think about that, giving women for menopause these endocrine disruptors, it's not really doing the same thing as giving you back or replacing the hormones that you've lost, which is what we do at bioidentical hormone replacement. Now, it's important to note that today, um, unlike in 2002 today, there are pharmaceutical brands that do make bioidentical estrogens and bioidentical progesterone. So it's not just the compounding pharmacies where you can get these things. You can get a prescription um, for bioidentical estrogen and bioidentical progesterone. The problem is most doctors don't know the difference. And the reason why is because if you look on studies on PubMed or any of the medical journals, when they're talking about synthetic progestin and when they're talking about conjugated equine estrogen, in the study, they will interchange the words conjugated equine estrogen with estrogen. And they'll interchange progestin with progesterone as if it's the same thing but it's not the same thing. It's very, very different. So this is why doctors uh, a lot of times don't know the difference. Bioidentical hormones, however, are biologically identical to uh, what our body makes. So we're replacing exactly the chemical structure of what the hormone that our body would make is. And there's a lot of doctors that will say bioidentical is a marketing term or there's no such thing as bioidentical. It's not a marketing term. It's actually biochemistry. So if I was to extract estrogen from my body that I've made and I put it in uh, you know, a petri dish and I was looking at the chemical structure, it would look exactly the chemical structure of your bioidentical hormones. Now, where are they made from? A lot of women are like, well, where are you getting these bioidentical hormones? Because that can be uh, you know, important to know. We know that the conjugated equine estrogen was from horses and those horses were treated very badly. And there was a huge deal with PETA and how horrible they were treated. So where are the bioidentical hormones coming from? Well, those are actually plant-based. So they can come from uh, the wild yams and the Mexican wild yam or from soy. Um, there is a compound called diogenin. So there's a chemical compound that's within those plants that has to be extracted and then it's taken into the lab and different little parts of that chemical structure are removed to make it what's left over is then identical to the estrogen molecule or estradiol, identical to progesterone, identical to testosterone. So what's left is the molecule that is that hormone. And there's no yam left in that hormone. There's no soy left in that hormone. It's only the chemical structure that's been extracted. And um, so a lot of women ask me, well, can I just eat yams or can I just eat soy and get the same effect? Absolutely not. It's not the same. It's kind of like if you're drinking water or you're just taking hydrogen. Well, it's not the same. You're not going to hydrate yourself with just hydrogen. You naturally need the H2O and it's the same thing like taking it out. So those are, they are plant-based. There's no um, horses or pigs or, or humans involved in that situation. Although the first bioidentical hormones were actually extracted from the urine of women. And in China, I don't know if this practice is still in place, but I do know 50 to 70 years ago, 
the elders used to drink the urine of the younger women to get those estrogens back. So it's actually um, a known practice in China. And the first bioidentical hormones were from female estrogen or female urine. Um, and then, you know, I don't know where it happened, but some marketing team was together sitting around the boardroom and said, hey, you know, let's use horse estrogen instead. And that became really popular. And so that's what got used. Um, and so that's what was in the, the, the Women's Health Initiative study. So back in 2002, there was actually really, really good reason for the study, because up until this time, there hadn't been any large studies on hormone replacement. They were just you know, basing it off of the benefits and how women were feeling. And it was really common in the 70s, 80s, 90s for women to walk into their doctor's office, tell them about their symptoms and get a prescription for hormone replacement. It was just what, what got done. And then the Women's Health Initiative study came out and they figured they were just going to prove finally um, that hormone replacement was protective against heart disease and protective against osteoporosis and how it was healthy for women. And so it was really a, a good reason to do the study. And so they had two different arms of the study. One arm of the study was with women who had had a hysterectomy, so they no longer had a uterus. So they only got the uh, primarin, the, the estrogen only. Um, and this was because it was thought back then, and it's still thought in some circles now that if you don't have a uterus, you have no reason to take progesterone, which we can talk about why that's not true in a little bit. But those women just got progesterone, uh, or the, those women just got the conjugated equine estrogen. And then the other group were women that still had their uterus. So they got the conjugated equine estrogen and the medroxyprogesterone acetate, which was Provera and or um, yeah, Provera and Primarin put together. And so those women um, still had their uterus and these were all oral hormones. So these were all oral synthetic hormones that were taken. And they followed these women along. And after a few years, they actually stopped the study because they, they actually realized that the women in the group that was taking the combined progestin and equine estrogen were starting to get more incidences of heart disease. They were starting to get more incidences of stroke and they had an increased rate in breast cancer. Now the increased rate in breast cancer was one additional person per 1000, but it was still an increase. And so the study was stopped. The headlines came out, hormone replacement therapy causes breast cancer, hormone replacement therapy causes heart disease, hormone replacement therapy causes stroke. And so immediately women were yanked off their hormones. They were told no more hormones, no matter what they were taking, hormones were, were done. Um, a lot of lawsuits came out. So the companies that made these hormones had class action lawsuits against them and doctors were afraid they would lose their license. Even the doctors that read the study, which we'll talk about what the study actually said, but the doctors that read the study and believed that hormones were safe, they still were afraid to lose their license. They don't want to get sued. So women, if we want, women went from about 6 million women on hormone replacement to less than 2 million women on hormone replacement. So that's a lot. So women got all their symptoms back. Um, they started getting kind of antidepressants and, and, and that kind of led us to where we are now. We still have a lot of doctors who are still believing that hormones cause cancer, hormones cause heart disease. The, the studies have been looked back on several times. First, the group that were getting the equine estrogen only, they actually had a decrease in cancer rates, in breast cancer, in heart disease. So that part of the study was never reported. And then when we looked at the group that had the increase in cancer, this was versus the control group. 
So the control group was not on any hormones. So when they measured against the control, there seemed to be an increase in cancer in the combined group. But when they re-looked at the study and they re-looked at all the women, the women in the control group, a large portion of them had previously been on hormone replacement therapy, which protected them against cancer. So that kind of went wacky. But in 2019, so about 20 years later, um, there was a, a symposium, a breast cancer symposium in San Antonio. So it was a 2019 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium where 12 prestigious cancer universities all reported their findings. And they reported that estrogen replacement is actually protective against cancer. And they actually cited a lot of different studies and a lot of different research, including the fact that when women have pregnancies, it's actually protective against breast cancer because the increase in hormones during that time when you're pregnant actually has a protective effect. Even women with the BRCA mutation, so the, you know, the Angelina Jolie made it popular, the genetic mutation that um, makes you more susceptible to breast cancer. What that mutation actually does is it actually, our body has a natural way to inhibit the replication of cancer cells and people who have that genetic mutation can't inhibit it as well. So they have a more easier time um, having their cancer cells mutate. So that puts them at a higher risk of cancer to begin with. But there's actually research done showing that women who have had estrogen replacement with this gene defect actually had a 44% reduction in breast cancer rates. That's huge. So um, there's a great book actually by a oncologist who is actually an investigator for the American Cancer Institute. His name is um, Dr. Blooming. He wrote a book called Estrogen Matters. It's really well-researched and it talks about all of the benefits of estrogen and how it is actually beneficial protection against heart or heart disease and cancer, especially breast cancer. And then there's another researcher who I love. Um, she actually is a breast cancer survivor. Her name is Devaki Lindsay Berkson, and she wrote a wonderful, really easy to read for the lay person, whole paper on, it's called estrogen vindication. And you can Google that um, if you Google estrogen vindication. And she really, um, she was actually at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in 2019 when they found all these findings. And she, she really lists out, it's very well researched, easy to read. And also has all of the um, citations in it. So um, that's a resource I share a lot with my patients because sometimes when you read the studies, they can be confusing, even for doctors. And so when it's a nicely kind of mapped out for you with the commentary, I really think that that is really good for people to read and even bring to their doctors because, you know, a lot of doctors don't have this education. But there's, it's really, um, it's sad because estrogen is the one that gets the bad rap all the time, but estrogen is actually protective against breast cancer until um, 1974 was when tamoxifen came out. So if you're familiar with um, breast cancer therapies, when women have breast cancer, they're given hormone suppressing medication, one of them is called tamoxifen. Before tamoxifen was put on the market, the medication that was given to women to um, help them heal from metastatic breast cancer was actually estrogen. So um, it was only in 1974 when that pharmaceutical came out that they stopped giving women estrogen as an, a prevention or actually a treatment for breast cancer. So it's it's really funny to think that now we're blaming 
estrogen for breast cancer when that's not actually the case. Then people might say, well, my doctor said I have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer or progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. What does that mean? Or how can you say that estrogen doesn't cause it? Well, the fact is that all of the cells in our breast tissue actually have estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors. So when your cell is becomes cancerous, it still has those estrogen receptors and those progesterone receptors until it mutates enough that it no longer, they're no longer detectable. And so when you have an estrogen receptor cancer or a progesterone receptor positive cancer, that actually means that your cancer hasn't actually progressed enough to make those receptors no longer there. It doesn't mean that those hormones are causing the cancer. In fact, stem cells are actually what cause cancer, cancer stem cells, not estrogen. Because if that was the case, then every woman who gets pregnant, who has their estrogen skyrocket would be at ultimate risk for breast cancer. And we'd be seeing women who are pregnant have the highest rates of cancer of all women. And the truth is the, the highest rates of breast cancer are actually the women who are in perimenopause and menopause. And when they're um, when their estrogens are declining, so um, it even makes common sense when you think about it. I mean, look at who's getting breast cancer and who's not. It, it's really kind of counter to what we're, we've been told. And also, the other research that is really promising now as well is that women who do end up getting breast cancer, if they have had estrogen replacement in the past, or if they're currently on estrogen replacement they actually have a better outcome. They have better chances of survival and they have um, less of a hard time um, conquering that cancer so they beat it even faster. So um, there's really no reason, especially um, if you have a family history of breast cancer, that, that does not preclude you from taking hormone replacement therapy. Actually, I would actually recommend it as a protective aspect. Well, that's so fascinating. I feel like I just learned a ton and there's so much to go deeper on in this. Um, I remember reading a while back, actually, that that stat you mentioned about pregnancy actually being protective against that. And even realizing having, I had my first child at 19, having a child before age 20 is actually a pretty significant cancer inverse risk. And pregnancy is somewhat protective, but also I'm glad that you brought up sort of this medical gaslighting and women's symptoms being ignored. I'm glad this is entering the conversation and I'm glad there are practitioners like you who are actively working against this because I, I've seen that in the birth world. I've seen that in the thyroid world for with my own thyroid issues. And yeah. we hear this from, you know, we know that women aren't listen to as much as men when they are having a heart attack. We know women weren't even studied until 1993. So I feel like we have so yes. much catching up to do. A lot of people don't know that. And, you know, that that's exactly right. So women were not included in any studies before 1993. Um, so like everything you see about like medication safety and efficacy, how supplements work, even like down to like how like fat burning medications work, those are all most of the time done in like healthy young men. And so how things work in women is way different. And so that's a huge distinction to bring up. But the gaslighting, that's been going on forever. And I was just doing some research for a talk and I was kind of going back to the history of how women's like feelings and women's emotions and, and how our, our, our like ability to stand up for ourselves, how that's been suppressed for such a long time. In, in the early 1900s, it was really, really common for women to be given lobotomies, like up until like 1940s. Um, they would actually, as if women were, uncontrollable or if they were not easily to be controlled by their husbands or they they like to speak out, it was common instead of to put them in an insane asylum, 
which they would do sometimes for some women if they were like today's women, we talk a lot, like we, we stand up for ourselves, but back in like the early twenties and thirties, that was not tolerated. We didn't really have the voice that we have. And so women were either put in insane asylums or they were given lobotomies to make them more docile and easier to deal with. Then they ended up killing some people with the lobotomies because if you guys don't know what a lobotomy is, they literally take a sharp needle and they put it through your eye socket and they actually puncture your frontal lobe. And that makes you kind of like not yourself anymore. Um, It can make you like a vegetable, but what they were going for is the childlike kind of docile, agreeable, gleeful, kind of putting women into that place. And once that was kind of like taken out of the common medical procedures, then women were given Valium. You just kind of make us docile again. And now, you know, as when women go in and they were talking about their sex drive, they're talking about they're not able to like think clearly there. They feel like they're losing their edge at work. They're having brain fog. They're, they're feeling tired. They're given antidepressants again make a stop file. And I, I think that that's not fair as, as a as women, we have to talk about this and we have to really stand up for ourselves and we can't let a doctor write our prescription for the rest of our life. Right? We can't let them determine what we want for ourselves. We really have to keep searching if you don't like what a doctor tells you or you kind of think, well, I've heard otherwise or I've done some research. There's other doctors out there. Find another doctor, talk to your friends. I always say like, interview your doctor like you would someone you're going to date. You know, definitely don't, you're not going to like them all. They're not all going to be your cup of tea. And um, see, do they prescribe hormone replacement therapy for some women and not others? Do they, are they open to it? And that's, that's who I would actually talk to because they're going to give you the most information and they're going to be most open-minded. Not to say you have to take hormone replacement therapy, but it should be an option for you if you want to at least explore that route. I've said on here many times, at the end of the day, we are each our own primary healthcare provider and we can work with amazing practitioners, but the ownership of that starts with us. And that means we can hire and fire them if they aren't good partners in that. And I love that you already sort of dispelled the myths about hormone replacement necessarily causing cancer, heart disease, stroke, et cetera, because ironically, statistically, from my understanding, menopause actually increases risk of all of those things. And So it makes sense that there could be a protective effect of these hormones, especially if done in the right dose. But I hear from people who are like, well, we don't, hormone replacement isn't good because hormones naturally decline with age. So that's what they're supposed to do. Or like, of course, all these more glaring headlines, which I think is an even bigger problem in medicine of people cherry picking headlines, only reading the headlines of a news article that's misinterpreting a study to begin with and then running with it. And at the end of the day, it's like, that's not where great medical information originates. Yes. It's really funny that you said that because we just talked about the the reevaluation that women's health initiative study in 2019 where they actually found oh my god like estrogen protective all these wonderful things well guess what the headline was after that study it was only about the fact that they actually um determined that the the combined hormones with the synthetic progestin that actually did cause detrimental effects. And so the headline was still the same thing, combined hormones cause cancer. And even though the whole like nine hours was all about presenting the protective effects of estrogen, that was down in the article, like down low where no one actually reads. Most people just read the headlines. Most reports are just about the headlines. That's really, really sad. But yes, the protective effects of hormones go way beyond cancer. Um, when we talk about heart disease, heart disease is the, is the number one killer in women. And up until the time we hit menopause, 
women actually have an edge over men. Like men generally have a higher risk of heart disease than women when women have their hormones in place. But once women hit menopause, they're on equal playing ground with the men. So now their risk is higher. And so replacing hormones, so protective for your heart. And one of the reasons why is because the inflammation. So estrogen is anti-inflammatory. And so when we have less inflammation in our blood vessels, then um, we don't need to make as much cholesterol. And so um, when we have inflammation in our blood vessels and they become rigid because estrogen helps them to have more um, expansing and contracting and be more flexible and more hydrated, when they become rigid and more inflamed, then we get a little damage inside our blood vessels. And that damage needs to be repaired. Think of like a Band-Aid. Well, our body actually will make cholesterol as that Band-Aid to kind of cover up that damage inside the blood vessels. And then if you have more damage, there'll be more, there'll be more patching put in. And if you think about it, if you have a lot of patches put in inside your vessels, then you're gonna have a less blood flow. And if your blood, your vessels are more rigid and they can't expand and contract as well, and you have less blood flow because you have more cholesterol, then you're more likely to have a stroke or a blockage or a clot. And then just the heart itself, the ability for it to um, fire properly, expand and contract properly, um, that is really important to have your hormones balanced. A lot of women will notice as they go into perimenopause that they start getting like little heart palpitations. A lot of times they think they're having a panic attack, but it's really the hormones kind of declining and then coming back up because in perimenopause, you'll have this kind of, it's not a steady, like steady slope going down. It's really up and down. And so it can be really confusing for women, uh, especially when their hormones start declining because they can be low and then they can go back up. So the symptoms will come and go and you might think there's something wrong with you there. So the heart protective, they're very well documented. And then the brain, we're really seeing a lot with brain health. When our estrogen goes down for women and for men, it's when testosterone goes down, our hippocampus in our brain, which is really where our, our sense of self is, it actually shrinks. And the hippocampus is also where our temperature regulation system is. And so that's why we start getting the hot flashes. Our body really can't control, doesn't know, are we hot? Are we cold? And so this misfire there, because the hippocampus is actually shrinking, um, this causes the hot flashes and the cold flashes that women experience. And then also estrogen, is really important for the brain to be able to use glucose. So it really helps the brain to be able to utilize the glucose that it needs for energy. And when it can't do that, we start to form amyloid plaques in our brain. So if you look at a brain scan from a woman who is in her reproductive years versus a woman in menopause, you'll see more amyloid plaques in the brain, some more areas that are not working quite as well for women in menopause. And this can lead to things like Alzheimer's and dementia. It starts out as brain fog and then some mild cognitive impairment. And then maybe we forget why we even walked into a room. And eventually it can lead to more severe cognitive impairment and it can eventually lead to things like dementia and Alzheimer's. So um, replacing hormones can really encompass so many different things, including our heart health, our, our brain health, and then our, of course our bone health. Osteoporosis, the primary reason for osteoporosis is estrogen decline. There are other uh, ancillary causes of osteoporosis, of course, improper nutrition. So if you're not getting your enough protein, if you're not getting your minerals, although estrogen does help us to be able to utilize calcium from our diet, 
Um, and so th that does compound into it. And then progesterone, testosterone are also important for the rebuilding of the bones. So estrogen helps us to not lose as much bone. And then progesterone, testosterone help us with the building of the bone. So it's really all the hormones that go into our um, and the bone health importance. And the the really scary thing about osteoporosis, which really shocked me when I first heard it, was if a woman breaks a bone, especially like a hip, she's likely to die within the year of doing that. Um, it's a very high chance. It's like over 60% of how likely she is to die within a year. And it seems so crazy, but it's really because the quality of life goes down, the hopelessness, and um, it really is like the beginning of a compound effect of a snowball of other symptoms happening. And so alone, that one thing alone for preserving your bone health, that just might be one of the primary reasons why women decide to go on hormone replacement therapy because they might get a scan and it might show they have osteopenia and then they might get another scan and now they have osteoporosis. And replacing hormones is like one of the best things you can do to rebuild that bone along with a healthy diet and lifestyle, doing some resistance training or some weight bearing exercise. So hormones alone, a lot of women would love to just use hormones and, and just like not do anything else. But we always, we're very holistic in our practice. And if you're going to use hormones, you might as well get the benefit, the best benefit out of them. And that's going to be with a healthy diet, anti-inflammatory foods, optimizing your gut health because our gut is where uh, our hormones actually are able to be um, packaged up and excreted out of our system. We have a part of our gut called the estrobolome, which there's an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And after our estrogens are used in the body, um, they're actually packaged up into a nice little package, and then they're able to be excreted through our our, our bowels. And if we don't have that ability to do that, we can recirculate the estrogens and then that can cause estrogen dominance type issues and can just mess up our balance. And now all the hard work we're doing, replacing our hormones and living that healthy lifestyle can be inhibited. So you can, you can definitely get better results from hormone replacement if you live a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. I feel like that's true of anything. It's like, if you're going to do anything that are these more advanced interventions, it's like always, it makes sense to have a quality diet and lift some heavy things and get morning sunlight and hydrate and get good sleep. Those are going to make everything better. This episode is brought to you by sleep.me, formerly called Chili Sleep. You've heard me talk about them before and with good reason. Science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. And temperature-controlled sleep repairs muscle after a hard day's work. It improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And definitely, for me, it correlates with more deep sleep. In fact, cooling my sleep environment has been the single most impactful change I've made for my sleep, and I desperately miss my cooler sleep environment when I travel. Chilly Sleep makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. They create the environment that meets the body's natural need for lower core temperatures, promoting deeper, restorative sleep. Chili Sleep makes the Uller, the Cube, and the Doc Pro sleep systems, which are all water-based, temperature-controlled mattress toppers that fit over any existing mattress to provide your ideal sleep temperature. These mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep, cold sleep, and they're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power your day. They also just launched their new Doc Pro system, which has two times more powerful cold power than other models, 
It's whisper quiet and has a tubeless mattress pad that allows for five times more cooling contact. You can pair it with the new sleep.me app for enhanced device control and sleep scheduling. And I love all of these because they cool your bed, not your room, which is more effective at keeping you cool while sleeping and uses less energy than for instance, running your air conditioning really low all night. Head over to sleep.me slash wellness mama to learn more and save 25% off the purchase of any new cube, cooler, or doc pro sleep system. The offer is available exclusively for you guys, wellness mama listeners, and only for a limited time. So that's sleep.me, S-L-E-E-P dot M-E slash wellness mama to take advantage of these exclusive discounts. This episode is brought to you by Timeline Nutrition. We've all heard of probiotics and probably also prebiotics, but have you heard of postbiotics? Thanks to emerging research, I've been getting to experiment with these. We know that maintaining muscle mass as we get older is critically important to longevity and to enduring good health. In fact, it is one of the biggest predictors of longevity and one of the reasons I lift weights regularly and keep an eye on metrics like grip strength. Postbiotics are the active nutrients that your body makes during digestion, and they're an emerging driver of these metrics for a couple of reasons. One major reason is that certain postbiotics support mitophagy or the flushing out of old damaged mitochondria, which is really critical in the aging equation. The best compound I found to support this is called urolithin A, and I was super intrigued when I found it. It's derived from pomegranate, but it's very hard or practically impossible to eat or drink enough pomegranate to get the scientifically proven therapeutic dose. But urolithin A is one of the first probiotics that we found to have major health benefits, and it's become available to all of us. It upgrades your body's cellular power grid, giving your body the energy it needs to optimize. And clinical studies have shown that 500 milligrams of urolithin A alone significantly increase muscle strength and endurance with no other change in lifestyle. And that's where a product I found called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition comes in. They have created three ways to get this daily 500 milligram dose of urolithin A in their product called MitoPure. They have a delicious vanilla protein powder one, that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure. They have a berry powder that mixes easily into smoothies or just about any drink. And they even have soft gel capsules for travel or you can use them every day if you prefer. Personally, I like the starter pack that lets you use all three forms and see which one you like best. And MitoPure is the first product to offer this precise dose of urolithin A to upgrade mitochondria function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength and endurance. Right now, Timeline is offering 10% off your first order of MitoPure. You can get this by going to timelinenutrition.com slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama. So again, that's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama. But I think you touched on what I think is another really important myth when it comes to this, which is that it's only really a resolution for symptoms and that the only reason you would want to go on hormones is to get rid of symptoms. And that for that reason, you'd want to for sure wait till after menopause to even consider doing this, which to me seems crazy to think because you wouldn't wait till you had full-blown diabetes, hopefully, to start <laughs> making some interventions. You know, you would wait, you would start hopefully have that data and pay attention much earlier and avoid the more severe problems. Uh, it's just funny to me that that's not how the hormone conversation is going most of the time. Well, you know, I mean, in conventional medicine, I don't know that with diabetes, your diabetes example, a lot of times they do say, let's wait and see. Well, okay, it looks like you're going in the wrong direction, but let's keep an eye on it. And then you come back and like, now you're in diabetes and now you need medication. So that that is kind of like how the medical system likes to roll with things. Um, but most doctors, it most well-trained doctors who have integrative type uh, training in anti-aging and hormone replacement 
agree that as soon as you're noticing, like you're feeling off, that's the time to start testing your hormones and start replacing. You may start with just progesterone. So that's usually the first hormone to, to fall for most women. I say usually because every woman's different, but usually progesterone starts to fall first and you'll notice difficulty sleeping. You might notice some anxiety and depression. You might notice your weight is kind of hard to manage. You might notice like you're starting to feel a little off and just kind of fatigued during the day. And that's really the first sign that something's off. Um, of course, periods will start to get irregular. I guess that's the first sign that something's off as well. Your cycles will start either getting longer or shorter or erratic. And so you can start with just progesterone to keep that balance. And that really helps a lot of times. And then um, you might need to add some estrogen in, then you might need to add some testosterone support in. And so it's not like you just wait until everything kind of the crap hits the fan. Um, and then you start doing it because it's the best time that there's a proverb that says the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. And the second best time is right now. The same thing about hormones. I mean, a lot of women might be listening to this after they've been in menopause for a while. And so now might be the best time to address it. But if you're Younger, if you're in your 30s and you haven't started experiencing symptoms, or if you're in your 40s and you're starting to experience symptoms, now's the time to address it before you start getting all the other symptoms and you can start to do more damage. Because one of the things that a lot of women come to me for is they feel like they, they age just overnight, just like boom. They look young one day and then all of a sudden now they have wrinkles, they've lost a lot of their collagen, and they're just feeling like they look super old now. And the truth is in the first that that first year where you lose your periods, that, that's like after 12 months of not having your periods, that's considered like now you're in menopause. From that time until like two years after menopause, you lose about 30 to 35% of your collagen. And that's due to the loss of estrogen. So we start losing it at around age 30 and it's like fragile, but then we hit menopause and boom, we lose about 30%. So if you can get ahead of that, that's better than any like med spa treatment, any Botox, any fillers, because you are going to preserve your own collagen. Um, if you're, you hit it after the fact, you can, you can definitely rebuild collagen. There's a lot of different things you can do to do that, but it, it is huge. So if you can catch it earlier, that's going to make a huge difference. And so that's one of the things that people don't often talk about is the impact on your collagen and elastin and the way you look and feel about yourself. And that's your confidence. That's a lot of that really matters. And in our hair also, when our estrogen and progesterone are super low, um, we lose something in our body called sex hormone binding globulin. So that is actually, it's kind of like a, um, like the breaks on our hormones. Our body has a lot of checks and balances to make sure things stay balanced. And one of the things it does is it has sex hormone binding globulin to bind up hormones that it doesn't want to use right now. Because um, we don't really have storage for hormones. Like you think of your gallbladder stores bile, and um, we don't really have a storage bank for our hormones. So we have the sex hormone binding globulin to kind of bind up what we don't want to use. When estrogen and progesterone drop, so does the sex hormone binding globulin, and that can release up a lot of this testosterone that's still there. Not that women have increased testosterone, their testosterone will stay the same that it's been. It doesn't usually drop right away. And that can cause this androgen dominance. And then women notice they start to get like dark hairs on their chin. They start to get those whiskers. They might start to lose hair on their head. They might start to get a little irritable, um, maybe start gaining weight around their belly instead of women generally gain weight around like their hips and their thighs. Men usually gain weight around their belly, but that belly fat is usually due to that androgen dominance and that drop in the sex hormone binding globulin. So you can get ahead of that too, um, the earlier you replace your hormones. 
Uh, and then testosterone will eventually drop as well. And then some women need to support it. But I, I have women in their 70s who their testosterone is still pretty strong because that primarily is going to be coming from your adrenal glands. Our adrenals make DHEA. And that converts over to testosterone first before it converts over to estrogen if it's going to do that at all. So you can still have pretty strong testosterone, although some women will notice even early as their early 30s, they have a drop in testosterone. So it's really individual there. That's why I always recommend testing hormones and not just replacing hormones. It's not standard of care in the United States to test hormones for women at all. Um, it's thought that it's a waste of time if they're in menopause, hormones are low. If they're not in menopause yet, hormones are fluctuating, so why should we test them? But it's really not fair because if a man goes into a doctor's office and he starts complaining about symptoms of low testosterone, it is standard of care to immediately test his testosterone, prescribe him testosterone, and then retest his testosterone in a few weeks to make sure his testosterone is at a good level. A woman goes into the doctor's office, explains all the symptoms of low estrogen progesterone, She's get, not offered hormones at all. She's not offered testing. A lot of times she's offered, like I said, antidepressants or gabapentin, which is a really potent pain medication with lots of horrible side effects. But it's one of the go-tos for um, menopause treatment, unfortunately. And so it's really not fair. It's really um, double standard there. But like you said, men are often offered pain medication before women are. Men are often diagnosed with heart disease before women are. And so it's really something that we're, we're trying to change in our practice. And we're trying to really get the word out so women can really demand these things. And unfortunately, insurance may not pay for your hormone tests, but there's a lot of affordable um, direct-to-consumer tests. And um, our practice, you can just order a test with nothing. We don't have to be our patient or anything. We, we think that knowledge is power. And the more you know about your body, the more you can direct your medical team to help you. Like, I always feel like doctors are the facilitators. We have access to the testing. We have access to the prescriptions. But like you said earlier, you are really the one who has to be in charge of your health. And you can't expect the insurance industry to like take care of you. Like, when you think about like your insurance for your house, like we all have home insurance, but it doesn't like pay for like cleaning your house. It doesn't pay for like the day-to-day -day maintenance. Is there if your house burns down? And our health insurance is really the same way. It's not really to keep you healthy and to optimize your health. It's there if you like get hit by a car and you need to like go into surgery right away. But it's not really there to keep your hormones balanced. And um, that's not really what it's for. Yeah. And you touched on something so important. And I'll make sure I link in the show notes to your website because you have so much educational content around this. I feel like you yourself are a walking, breathing encyclopedia of hormone knowledge. And I know you have resources where women can directly get in touch with you and or order these tests. But I think this touches on another big issue in this, which is like for a long time, testing wasn't available. It was hard to figure out. Um, even now, I feel like it's it's overwhelming to try to figure out what exactly should women be testing? What levels are they looking at? Like, when is it a good time to get a baseline for that so that you know, like, what are some general guidelines you give women of an optimal case scenario of like, if you want to navigate hormones throughout perimenopause and menopause without hitting these more negative side effects, when do you start and what do you look at? Yeah. So if you, I mean, if in an ideal world, when a woman's like 28 years old, she would get her hormones tested to see like what her baseline, like when she feels her best, but it may be not 28 because maybe you didn't feel your best at 28, but whenever you felt your best in life, Touch your hormones then. And generally for a woman who's cycling, um, we like to test between day 19 and 21 of a 28 day cycle. So about five to seven days after ovulation, that's when progesterone is going to have its 
peak and then estrogen is going to have its second spike. And that gives us a good ratio. So when we're looking at testing, we have reference ranges based on the day that you took your test. So if you took your test, like on day three of your cycle, we look at a reference range that correlates to where those levels should be. But if you took your test on days 19 through 21, we have reference ranges to tell us, okay, this is optimal for that time of the month. Also, if you're on hormone replacement therapy, we have reference ranges for a physiological dose of hormone replacement therapy. When I say physiological dose, I mean a dose that is similar to what a woman would have made at her peak of reproductive health. There's super physiological doses, which some doctors will prescribe, which are 10 to 100 times what a woman would have made at the peak of her reproductive health. And I do not recommend those. We don't, we don't work with super physiological doses in our practice. But I think that's what gives hormones a bad name. That's where women have side effects. That's where things go wrong. And that's why I'm not a fan of pellets. Pellets, they're not really regulated at all. And they sometimes have a lot more hormones in them than what's stated on the package. And unfortunately, the doctors that most of the time will be inserting pellets have done like a three-hour training just to learn the procedure of putting the pellet in. It's A pellet is a small little um, compressed, it's like a little compressed little, it looks like a little grain of rice that has the hormones in it that's supposed to release over time. And this little surgical procedure just to insert it under the skin, usually around your buttocks area. And so there's this chance of infection, of course, it's an office visit. But the the big problem with the pellets is once they're inserted, they they don't come out. And so you're stuck with that dose that's in the pellet, whether you react to it or not. And a lot of times it's a massive dose of testosterone. It could be a massive dose of estrogen and it can cause a lot of side effects. And so you have to wait for it to kind of wear off. And unfortunately, in the beginning, you get a big rush of hormones and towards the end, it tends to dwindle off. And so I'm not a huge fan of pellet therapy. Uh, There are some some women that love it. And it generally tends to be younger women who do the testosterone only pellets who are in like their 30s. Um, They tend to like it better than the women who are postmenopausal and have kind of bad side effects from it. So that's not my, I'm not a big fan of super physiological doses. I'm a fan of doses that are physiological doses. So we can look at test ratios in the reference ranges. There's a there's a standard range, an optimal range, just like every test that you can think of when you get a blood test, there's a standard range and an optimal range that we look at. And so for each woman, optimal might be different. Some women might do well with the, towards the higher end of the range, and some women might feel better on the lower end of the range. So we do look at symptoms in addition to testing. And we retest our our patients every four months and we look at their symptoms now and where their levels are. And then we can tweak things because we we use hormones that we can tweak very easily. Um, I'm a big fan of topical hormones because they're so easy to tweak. Um, Women can do, I can like basically tell them, oh, okay, why don't you use a little bit less today for these three days? And then at the end of your cycle, we'll bump it up a little bit. It's so easy to modulate based on how the women are feeling, if there's any um, illness or if there's a trauma in their life, they might need some more hormones or less hormones. And so it's really easy for them to regulate. And then there's a range for menopause if you're not on any hormones. And so there's different ranges we can look at. So I would definitely recommend testing as soon as you start to feel some symptoms. If you haven't tested at your peak, Start testing as soon as you start to feel some symptoms. Now in perimenopause, the tests can sometimes 
not tell the full story because one month you might have higher estrogen levels and the next month you might have lower, but based on your symptoms and your testing, we'll be able to correlate and give you a good idea of where you should be. Um, and then uh, what else? Let's see. I also like to test thyroid too. Um, when we do symptoms, we look at symptoms of high and low estrogen, high and low progesterone, high and low testosterone. We also look at symptoms of high and low cortisol. We look at symptoms of high and low thyroid. And then we look at symptoms of inflammation and metabolic syndrome. Even though um, for women who are working with us for hormone replacement, we might only initially test their estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and DHEA. But if they score high on when we do their symptom questionnaire for thyroid symptoms, for instance, like let's say they're, they're noting they're feeling cold and they're having constipation and their hair is falling out and they're fatigued. Then we might say, hey, you know what? Let's also test your thyroid if you haven't had thyroid tests lately because your symptoms kind of point to the fact that you might also have a thyroid issue, which can be helped by estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen and progesterone, when they're at healthy levels, can support optimal thyroid function. A lot of times women will have hypothyroid symptoms and they start hormone replacement and they actually start to feel better. So it's not always a need for thyroid medication. It could be a need for some nutrients like some selenium and iodine that might be missing from the diet. That could be something that could be supported. But we like to look at the whole picture of the whole endocrine system because it's really everything supports each other. That makes sense. And it seems like with anything in health, the more I learn, the more I realize it's all about personalization and individualization and moving away from a one-size-fits-all and putting people in the seat of power of figuring out what's going to work best for them and actually listening to them and responding to their specific use case, which seems like exactly what you do in your practice. And I can't believe our time has already passed so quickly. I hope we can do many more episodes (laughs) together because you are such a wealth of knowledge. I will, of course, link to your website in case people want to work directly with you. Do you do virtual work with people? We do. We're 100% virtual. We have a whole team of hormone specialists around the country. Um, So we are, we're here to help. Um, Even if you just have a question, I do a lot of free Q and A's. I have a YouTube channel where it's just free information. So I'm all about empowering women one way or another. I love that. And then a couple last quick wrap up questions until we can do more rounds in the future. The first being if there is a book or number of books that have really profoundly impacted your life and if so, what they are and why. Probably the book that was the biggest impact on my life is called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And that just helped me to really focus on what's important and and what's going on right now in in my family life. So if I have a lot going on at work and I'm going to go in and see my son, I don't pull with it the whole day. I actually am present with him and enjoying the moment and just being able to interact with people and and keep my emotions in check. I mean, the, the book really taught you to kind of be an observer and be able to look outside yourself. So if you're being reactionary, you're able to actually, after reading that book, I will actually like kind of step outside and actually see myself overreacting and, and think about what's really happening. And it's really helped me to center myself really to get more out of my meditation. And I, I just credit that book with being able to really focus and achieve all the things I've achieved in my life. So I, I'm really thankful for having that book in my life. I love that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for everybody listening. All of that, along with all the notes I've been taking during this episode are all at wellnessmama.fm. And lastly, any parting advice for the women listening today could be related to everything we've talked about or entirely unrelated. Um, I think just knowing that the body is incredibly intelligent and, and our bodies are really designed to have a state of health. 
a state of wellness and your body will continue to do everything it can to help you get there. Um, the, the only problem is sometimes there's so many unnatural things that we're exposed to that inhibit it. And so just working with your body and not against it and really focusing on helping your body to do, to protect you and to heal for you. And, and knowing that we really have limitless, limitless ability to heal um, as long as we just facilitate uh, and really support our body in doing so through through diet, through exercise, through mindset, and, and just keep learning, keep really just doing the things that you know in your heart are going to bring you to where you need to be. I think that's a perfect place to put a pin in it for today. Though, like I said, I hope we get to do many more episodes together. Um, but for today, I'm deeply grateful to you for all the work that you do and for being here and for sharing today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks as always to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're both so grateful that you did. Please check out all the resources in the show notes and reach out to Dr. Sands if you have questions. And until next time, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.